Well, I absolutely love Easter, and you might expect a pastor to say that, but I do. And when you're a pastor and it's Christmas or Easter, everyone already knows what you're going to talk about, but that's okay because in the, uh, both sides of this, in the pain and the chaos uh, of life and the demands of life, the fact is that we can forget. And on the other side of it, if things are going really, really well and we, like, all of our needs are met and our relationships are going really well, we can kind of forget as well. And today is a chance for some of you maybe to be reminded or for some of you to understand for the very first time something that you never really understood because Easter, Easter is the thing on which everything else hinges. Easter is not a peripheral thing because Easter points to the answer to the question that everyone should ask. I believe it's the most important question uh, in the world, but uh, you might not. But at the very least, I think we can agree at least that it is a very important question. And if you haven't asked it since you were a kid, or maybe you haven't asked it as a Christian in a long time, you should ask it because Easter points us to the answer to the big question. And the question is, who is Jesus? And, and this is so important, maybe more important than we understand, because it was the resurrection alone that convinced his first century followers that he was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of of God, God in Abad. It wasn't his teaching, it wasn't uh, his other miracles that are documented for us that convinced the first century followers. It was one thing it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection that convinced uh, the first century followers that he was who he said he was and has been convincing people ever since. But if this is your first time with us, here's something that you need to know about us. We don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us so. It's way more substantial than that. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the first century follower of Jesus named Matthew documented the life of Jesus and documented the resurrection. And it's something we call the book of Matthew. And we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because a Greek named Mark, who was a friend of Peter, got Peter's story out of him and concluded in the first century, not a century later, that Peter was telling the truth and Jesus did in fact rise from the dead and documented in something that we call the Gospel of Mark. And we believe because a Greek physician named Luke who traveled all over the area of Judea and around the world with the Apostle Paul concluded after he met enough people who had seen the resurrected Jesus that Jesus was alive. And he gave us an account that we call the Gospel of Luke. And at the beginning of his document, he says to the person that he's writing this for, O oh, excellent Theophilus, like many others, I'm sitting down to give you an orderly account of the events that took place among us. And we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Apostle Peter, of the, the Apostle Peter and the two letters that we have that he wrote, because the first century church, men and women, were willing to be excommunicated from their families and even to die, not for what they heard, but for what they saw. Jesus back from the dead. And we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because James, the brother of Jesus, who up until Jesus' death and burial refused to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And then in a complete turnaround, in one day, he concluded that Jesus, his brother, was his Lord. And what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God and Abad and your Lord? One thing, rise from the dead. It would take that. And James did not believe Jesus was his Lord when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. He was not impressed 
by his sermons or his tricks or his supposed miracles. But then James, the brother of Jesus, shows up as as the lead pastor in the city of Jerusalem, of the church in Jerusalem, and is later stoned to death because he insists that his crucified brother rose from the dead and was his Lord. And we have one of the documents that he wrote. And we believe that because the Apostle Paul, who stepped on the pages of history as a one-man wrecking machine bent on eradicating the church, though they didn't call it the church, they called it the ecclesia, the gathering, on eradicating the ecclesia, all the followers of Jesus in a dramatic turn after a life-altering encounter with Jesus, who was supposed to be dead, he became convinced. Because that's what you do when you have an encounter with a dead man walking. And he spent much time with Peter and Andrew and James and John and James, the brother of Jesus. And these extraordinary brave men documented what they saw, what they heard, what they heard from others who had seen a resurrected Jesus. And these documents were collected and protected and many years later were combined and put into a collection we call the Bible. But long before there was a Bible, there were men and women who were witnesses of and friends of witnesses of a resurrected Jesus. And without the resurrection, the story of Jesus, it isn't even worth telling. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you are wasting your time. You are wasting your time being here or being with us online because you should reject everything Christian. Because if there was no resurrection, then Jesus was a liar or he was a lunatic. And you should not follow a liar or a lunatic. Because apart from the resurrection, Jesus was just simply another Jewish rabbi that went off the rails and he was nothing more than a wannabe Messiah executed by Rome. The Apostle Paul says in one of his letters, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If for only this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And the people who were closest to Jesus are so excruciatingly honest. In fact, one of the reasons that I believe you should take their account seriously is because if you were trying to make up a religion or a religious movement, you would never write the story the way that they wrote it because they do not write themselves into the stories, story as heroes. They write themselves into the story as doubters and as cowards who are constantly getting it wrong. And they are embarrassingly honest about the fact that after the crucifixion, they expected Jesus to do what all dead people do. Stay dead. Not even the closest, most committed among them expected a resurrection. No one was standing outside the tomb, counting backwards from down, backwards from ten, on Easter morning, like ten, nine, eight, cue the sun, seven, six, cue some doves, Five, four, three, get the stone rumbling. No one was there. They were all in hiding because they determined they had been fooled. They had been tricked. Because the problem with Jesus was not what he taught and was not what he did. The problem with Jesus was that he claimed too much about himself. He repeatedly claimed to be the one and the only resurrection, the only way to life and reconciliation with God, and yet he was put to death. So clearly Jesus was a liar or a lunatic. They had been deceived and misled. And one of the eyewitnesses is John, and John witnessed both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He details both for us, and 
though like the others who followed Jesus, he did not expect either a crucifixion or a resurrection. Do you know what he expected? He expected a king. John tells us that just two miles from Jerusalem in Bethany, Jesus performed a miracle that went beyond all of the other miracles he had performed. He raises Lazarus from the dead, not four hours after he died, but four days later. He's been dead for four days. And just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, many, many Jews put their faith in Jesus because this was an undeniable act of God for anybody who saw it. And there was this groundswell of support and passion and building momentum. And and Jesus and his disciples, they had the crowd. And John said after the resurrection of Lazarus, many believed in him. But the problem was too many believed in him. And Jesus' enemies back in Jerusalem, they they decided enough is enough. If we don't do something about Jesus, in their own words, the whole world will go after him. They knew that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for Passover and the city would be crowded, so they decided that this was their best opportunity to take him out. They would wait until after all the festivities were over and thousands and thousands of of people were leaving the city, that they would isolate Jesus from the crowd and then they could arrest him and convince Rome to ultimately execute him. So as Jesus and his disciples leave the area of Bethany, they move towards Jerusalem. Uh, The crowd knows he's coming. The city is full of spies and the city is full of fans. And there's just so much patriotic zeal around Passover because Passover was a reminder to the Jewish people that once upon a time, a long time ago, God had delivered the nation, the nation from the bondage of the Egyptians. And they hoped that the Passover would come when God would deliver the nation from the bondage of Rome. And perhaps this was finally that Passover. And they hoped that Jesus would rip off his rabbinic robe and declare himself king. And as he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem, he's met by thousands and thousands declaring him Lord, declaring him king. And it gets very political very quickly. He comes into the city a few days before the final Passover Sabbath. He makes his way to the temple. He teaches and he preaches. He works his way uh, freely throughout the city. People are watching him at all times, fans and enemies alike. And then it's then that Judas runs out of patience. And he goes to the temple leaders and, and, and says, I can isolate him from the crowd. I can isolate him at a time. It will be easy for you to arrest him. And he makes a deal. And toward the end of the week, Jesus celebrates the final Passover with the twelve. And while he is there, he increases their expectations that perhaps this is the time where, where he will finally declare himself king. And they're having this meal. And Jesus announces that he is establishing a brand new covenant. And for these Jewish men who grew up being raised listening to the Torah and raised raised listening to the prophets, they knew that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted and foretold and prophesied that one day God, in fact, would declare a new covenant with his people. And Jesus had indicated that this is that time. Jesus tells them, I'm about to inaugurate that covenant that God promised so many years ago, but that this covenant would be established in His blood. And they had no context for this. They did not understand. And whereas the terms and and the conditions of the first covenant were given to a specific group of people and a nation was very complicated, this new covenant would be for the whole world. That it would would be between God 
and man and the human race. And unlike the first covenant, the terms and conditions of this new covenant were very simple. It is one new command. You are to love each other as I have loved you. You're to love each other not the way that you have been loved by others, not the way you want to be loved by others. This isn't do unto others as you would have others do unto you. This is a whole new level. You are to love each other and you're to love others. You're to love those in the world the way I have loved you. And the next day, he would demonstrate what he meant by what he said. And this was to be the trademark, the defining, defining brand of this new movement. And clearly they thought he was about to declare himself king and to do something for the nation. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus was about to do something for you and for you and for you and for me. For the whole world. And they leave the meal. And at that very night, as you know, Judas has betrayed Jesus. The setup is in place and in motion. Jesus was isolated from the crowd. And Judas thinks this will finally get Jesus to quit playing games and to finally assert his authority and take his throne. But instead, Jesus allows himself to be arrested. And he's taken to the high priest where he's falsely accused. He's beaten. Later, they take him to Pilate because they want Jesus executed and they want him executed quickly while they can momentarily control and manipulate the crowd. So they take him to Pilate. But Pilate doesn't want anything to do with it. But they convince Pilate to talk to him. And Pilate does. And then he comes out and he says, I can find nothing wrong with this man. There are no charges worthy of death. And they say, he must die. So Pilate decides, this will get them off my back. I'll have him flogged, beaten within an inch of his life. And surely, when I bring out out his beaten, broken, bloody, this wannabe king, surely, surely, the crowd will change and they won't force me to execute this man. So he has him flogged, and he brings him out hoping there will be mercy from the crowd. And instead they say, no, he must die. He must die, because he claims to be the Son of God and to be a king. And Pilate, if you are a friend of Caesar, you cannot allow this man to live. And Pilate relents. And again, John is writing all this as an old man. In fact, he's likely dictating it, because at this point he's too old to see and can't write well by this time. And so and somebody's taking down his words in the Greek because Greek is the language of the empire. And this story isn't just for a nation and a people group. This story is for the whole world. And John, who was there for all of this, says at that point, the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he was taken to the place called the skull. And there they crucified him. And no details are given because no details are necessary. Because everyone in the first century and the second century had seen or seen the aftermath of a crucifixion. And he was crucified with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And John gives us an unnecessary detail that would be easy to show that it wasn't true unless it was true. John tells us, he describes a moment as he stands there, he's gazing at Jesus, but wanting to look away, He stood beside Mary, Jesus' mother, and Jesus says to him, John, Mary is now your mother, and and Mary, John is now your son. And this this was Jesus' way of saying, take care of my mom. Especially in this culture where widows were so vulnerable, 
And one of Jesus' final acts was to make sure that his mom was taken care of. And John said, I, I was there. I heard him utter his, his final words. It is finished. And then I watched as he bowed his head and died. And, and if you're reading his gospel on your own, you would skip right by his next words because they seem so insignificant and yet they are so extraordinarily important. John pauses and he reflects and then he makes this statement, uh, not for his immediate audience, but for future generations, for us. He writes, the man who saw it has given testimony, talking about himself. What he's saying is, I didn't read about this. I didn't hear about this. I saw this. I saw it. And then it says, if John reaches out through the ages to grab each of us by our shoulders and look us in the eye and say, in his testimony, speaking of himself, in his testimony, it's true. He knows that he's telling the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. To which we might go, well, John, so far so good. We believe there's a wannabe Messiah. He gets executed by Rome, I, I believe, a rabbi who went off the rail and fools his followers, and finally the rig, religious leaders track him down, they capture him and get rid of him, we, we believe. To which John would say, no, 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 not that part, not that part. It's the next part that you'll have a hard time believing, but I, I swear my testimony is true. What happened next happened. I was there. I saw it all. He says later, Joseph of Arimathea, specific name, so much detail. It's as if, if John is saying, fact check me. Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Why? Because you couldn't bury a crucified body unless you bribed someone. The centurion site, or in this place, Pilate. They asked Pilate for the body, and after Pilate verified that Jesus was in fact dead, with Pilate's permission, Joseph came, and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds of things to embalm Jesus' body. Why did he do that? Because they expected Jesus to do what dead men do. Stay dead. And again, if you're trying to make up a religion or inspire a movement, this is not how you write the story. In taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And so John writes this so that he could make sure that people who didn't understand Jewish customs would understand what's going on. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This was John's way of saying we, they were in a hurry. The sun was about to set, and once the sun set, the Sabbath began, and none of this work would be lawful at that point. So they hurriedly prepared Jesus' body for burial. They put him in this tomb in this cave, have slaves roll the stone in front of it, and they left. And John and Peter and the others disappear into the city as well. We don't know what John did that night. We, we don't know what Peter and John talked about. Maybe in the trauma of the moment, they didn't say anything. But John tells us that early that Sunday morning that they were awakened 
if they slept at all. Someone's banging on the door, and certainly their first thought was the soldiers have found us. But then they realize Roman soldiers don't bother knocking. So they go to the door, and there's Mary Magdalene, who is one of Jesus' most devoted followers. She had followed Jesus for a long time because Jesus had performed a miracle in her life and delivered her. She was one of the many women who followed Jesus, who was so grateful because Jesus regularly and consistently elevated the dignity and the value of women and of children and of everyone. And like all the women followers, she was so brokenhearted when Jesus was crucified. And she's banging on the door and they open the door and she's panicked and distraught and she's sobbing and they can barely understand what she's saying. And she says to Peter and John, they have taken the Lord. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. We went to the tomb to make sure that his body was properly prepared because a couple of men did it. And the stone was rolled away and we looked inside and there was no body. And she assumes what anyone would assume. Not a miracle. Not a resurrection. Again, part of what makes us all so trustworthy is that no one writes themselves into the story as a hero or a believer. She looked into an empty tomb and she assumed what you would assume. Someone has stolen the body. And we don't know where they, whoever they is, put him. And whereas they'd been hiding the night before, suddenly the urgency is felt in that moment. And John says, so Peter and the other disciples, speaking of himself, started for the tomb. Both were running. And I just, I love this part. You think there's no humor in the Bible. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, this is just guys for you, okay? See, I I think this is an interesting detail. This is just a theory, okay? But, But at the time that John is dictating this, it's likely he chuckled. Because by this time, his best friend Peter had been executed by Nero. And John thought to himself, hey, Peter's not here to defend himself and be embarrassed. So I outran him to the tomb. People should know. But if I'm going to tell that part of the story, I have to tell the whole story. And John says, when I got to the outside of the tomb, I stopped. I bent over and I looked in at the strips of linen lying there. I'll be honest, I didn't go in. And why didn't he go in? Because it was a tomb and it was dark. And he says, eventually, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Now, why did Peter do that? Because he was Simon Peter, and that's what Simon Peter does. Simon Peter didn't wait. He spoke too soon. He acted too soon. He was always getting into trouble. Peter is my personal favorite because of all the disciples, I relate to him the most. And he went straight into the tomb, and John says, what we saw, we did not expect. Because when somebody steals a body, they take everything with it. But what we saw in that moment convinced us that our world, that the world, had changed. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. This, This wasn't a mess. This wasn't a rush job. Thieves would not take the time to disembalm the body and lay everything out neat and folded. And John finally musters up the courage to step inside. And then John gives us his formula. And this is the formula that we find throughout the Gospels. And it's the formula that he wants to leave his readers with because it takes us to the epicenter of the Christian faith. John said, speaking of himself, 
he saw. And he put two and two together and he believed. And his world changed because the resurrection of Jesus reframed his entire life. It reframed everything about his life and it hit him. If this is true, it means that everything Jesus taught was true. Everything Jesus taught about God, who he invited to refer to as our heavenly Father, he realized in that moment where at the final Passover, Philip said, Jesus, please, just show us the Father. And Jesus looked at Philip and looked at the guys in the room and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm as close as to understanding what God is like as you'll ever get this side of heaven. And they all should have gotten up and left, but they didn't. And now in this moment, it dawns on John. We don't know where Jesus is, but clearly he has risen from the dead. I saw him crucified. I saw him die. I saw him embalmed. I saw him buried. And now he has risen. He, the one, the one who invited a tax gatherer to follow her. To follow the one who elevated the dignity of women and children and the marginalized and the outcasts, the one who spoke to centurions, the one who spoke to the rich, the poor, the empowered, the disempowered, the sick, who touched the untouchable and loved the unlovable. The God of ages has stepped down from a place so grand that we can't even imagine. As was sung earlier, to wear my sin and to bear my shame. And the best way I can describe it is it's as if the light of the world entered the world and lit it up for us. And John and Peter and the others would eventually see Jesus alive from the dead. Hundreds would. They would have conversations with him. They would eat with him. All four gospel writers document some of these conversations. But one in particular I want to read as we close. You see, when Jesus was crucified, everyone knew it was over. Because Jesus declared too much about himself. See, this wasn't like some of the other movements in culture where a leader goes away or is assassinated or just dies and people want to keep the dream alive and the beliefs alive or the ideas and the teachings alive. No, there was no teaching to keep alive. Because so much of Jesus' message was about himself and why he had come. So they realized... It's all a lie. And they scattered. And Peter and John stayed in town. Some of the disciples went back to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Some of the disciples, we don't know where they went. They just knew there was a price on their head. We need to get away. And one of those disciples was Thomas. And John gives us the detail of Jesus' first encounter with Thomas. He writes, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Because Jesus' sightings were circulating all over Jerusalem and, and that vicinity. And Thomas heard people saying, Jesus is back from the dead. Jesus is back from the dead. So he makes his way back to the city to reconnect with the disciples. And they're like, Thomas, where have you been? The Lord, he's alive. But the problem is that Thomas was not superstitious. He was a realist. And Thomas felt like he had just spent the last three years of his life chasing a lie. He is not about to spend the rest of his life chasing a ghost and a rumor. So he says, fellas, listen. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands 
and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. John, I, I love you, but your, your word is not enough. Peter, I love you, but I think you're seeing things. And the rest of you guys, I love you, but I am not about to dedicate the rest of my life talking about a dead man who came back to life unless I see him. And who can blame him? A week later, John tells us his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. And John, he says, I know this detail is odd, but I'm just telling you how it happened. We were in the room. The doors, they were locked. But though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And why did he say that? Because they were scared to death. Jesus, you scared us to death. And then he looked at Thomas. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. It's me. Thomas, it's me. And I love this. The Greek translation of this verse literally is, do not be unbelieving, but believing. John included this little piece of narrative again because it goes back to his central theme. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Thomas, I understand why you doubted. I understand why you didn't believe. And don't let the rest of these guys give you a stupid nickname like Doubting Thomas because not one single person in this room believed that I had risen from the dead until they saw me. And then at this moment, Jesus looks to the ages, to you and to me, knowing that this story would be told for generations and generations, for centuries. With you and me in mind, he says to the group gathered that day, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You have believed because you've seen, but blessed are those future generations, the people that will come after you, the people that you tell. Matthew and John, blessed are the people who are going to read your accounts that you have yet to write. Blessed are those future generations who believe, hear and believe, but have not seen. And then John closes his account with this. He closes it with an invitation that is for all of us. And his invitation is simple. John says, my testimony, it's true, it's true. I just want you to believe that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. And then once you're convinced he's who he claimed to be, I just want you to take one more step. I want you to place your trust in. I want you to believe that, and then I want you to believe in. And here's how he says it. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The signs and the miracles that I have selected, these are written not simply so that you would know what happened, these have been written by me, and I've ordered them in such a way that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I want you to believe that, and then I just want you to do one more thing. But these words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want you to believe that, but I want you to personally trust in and if we were to ask John why, he would say, I'll tell you why. Because there came a morning that sealed and punctuated and authenticated his promises. Again, we sang it here at New Life. His buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence, the, what we thought was going to be silent forever, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on you or on me.
John concluded after being with Jesus that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. That was Jesus' invitation to John and that's your Heavenly Father's invitation to you and to me. And my hope is that this Easter season won't just be another Easter that you check off the box, box, I went to church, because that's what you're supposed to do. I'm a cheester, I go Christmas, I go Easter, I check it off. That's what you're supposed to do. And, and it may be that you're missing out on something more, that God's love for you, that God's sacrifice for you, and that the life He could give you now in this life, that my hope is that it would become personal to you. For some of you, you believe some information, but and I'm not judging you. I'm just stating objectively that it's just kind of on the periphery of your life. And my hope is that for maybe just the next few weeks, maybe even just till Father's Day, you'd try something new because I believe that you would discover something you had no idea that you've been missing. The opportunity for God to invade and do amazing things and you have no idea what you're missing out on for God to show up in the nitty-gritty, mundane details of your life, not just once or twice a year. And that based on John's account, that you would believe that and then you would trust in that you would have Jesus' life every day of your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much that we have the words of John sharing with us what he experienced, that we might have the opportunity to weigh that with everything else that we know from those that were there to make a decision so that, Father, it can provide an anchor in our lives that when everything else seems confusing and uncertain and even terrifying, that there can be always that thing that we can go back to as the key anchor you are trustworthy, that no matter what the circumstances, that you can be trusted. So I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for today, and I thank you for your son, Jesus, and this love for you that, quite honestly, we can't comprehend, but we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.